miss the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast. So how bumpy is the road going to be when it comes to surging inflation? Well, the Bank of Canada governor says it's transitory, but not permanent. So it kind of sounds a lot like suck meat blow, because what he's admitting is, yeah, inflation's here to stay for a lot longer than he initially told us. So we'll talk about that. Aaron O'Toole will not take a stand on vaccine mandates. I don't know why he's insisting on fighting a battle that cost him the election. And if he can't control his caucus, which has now split into two parties, what does this say about his future as leader? And why did the Toronto police go to a Port Dover home? And how did their visit end up with one of the country's most respected gunsmiths being killed by a hail of bullets. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I can't imagine any of you ever even occurring to you to say that, but that's exactly what conservatives are saying. They're saying they should get special treatment because they're MPs, that they don't need to be protecting the people in their workplaces alongside them. They don't need to be setting an example for all Canadians who really should be leaning in on vaccinations. That's the furthest thing from who you are, who we are as Liberals, that you could possibly imagine. And unfortunately, we're still going to have to do that fight. Oh, the vaccine games continue, and the Prime Minister's all too happy to have the fight that Aaron O'Toole hands to him every day. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, November 8th. Yes, here we go into a brand new week. Yet uh, same old games being played by the politicians. And if there's one issue I am so sick and tired of talking about, it is vaccine mandates. So I still, I don't understand why it's still taking up all the oxygen in the room. Other than the fact that Aaron O'Toole still can't make up his mind and take a position on the issue, which then gives life to a narrative that Justin Trudeau can and does use to deflect from his own failures, which, of course, are never ending. And for a pretty smart guy, Aaron O'Toole's making some really dumb mistakes. And for whatever reason, he just cannot quit the wedge issue now splitting his party and undermining his leadership. And O'Toole's made pretty clear that he's vaccinated and he pushes people to get the shot. But now he's lost control of a small group of rogue MPs who have now claimed what they call a mini caucus, a caucus within the party that will help advocate for the unvaccinated. And Marilyn Gladue, who also ran for the party leadership against Aaron O'Toole, is leading this charge. So right there, you know that she's got her own agenda in mind. But how is she getting away with this? I mean, she's telling everybody she's not undermining her leader. Well, yeah, she is. You can't look at this any other way. Aaron O'Toole's the leader. He's supposed to be in charge. And if he were, this would not have happened. I mean, just ask a guy like Stephen Harper. And he may not have been the cool kid, but what he was, was respected. And what he had was control of his caucus. I mean, we never heard about infighting or rogue mini caucuses, yet... Here we are, with up to 30 conservative MPs now saying they're going to fight vaccine mandates for their constituents. Now, I'm personally against mandates, but I know that this is not a fight that Aaron O'Toole can win. Because these MPs will only be seen as fighting for the anti-vaxxers. And because O'Toole can't shut it down, he now appears to be married 
to the strategy that cost him the election. At a time as public officials, we should be reducing hesitancy, answering questions, and we should try and not divide Canadians on the subject of vaccines. We saw Mr. Trudeau do that by announcing a mandate just before he called an election, hoping to divide people on that subject. And so I think Conservatives, we have an obligation to show as elected officials leadership. Mm-hmm. So show some. Get your caucus in control. And kick out those who are undermining your leadership. And O'Toole was asked numerous times if he's going to kick out the rogue MPs. And numerous times he wouldn't say what his strategy or what he was going to do. So now there are two parties within the Conservative Party. And one of those parties is a bunch of rogue MPs who are going to get more organized, are only going to get much louder, and continues distracting from very real issues worrying Canadians because the guy in charge can't, for whatever reason, take charge. And sadly, we've seen this time and again with O'Toole and other conservatives, you know, those who try too hard to be too many things other than a conservative. We saw it when O'Toole flipped on carbon taxes, when he couldn't answer questions about gun controls, and essentially trying to appease a small group of social conservatives who will never be appeased. And O'Toole is right. Trudeau is playing games with vaccines, and there are very legitimate concerns about the mandates and the loss of, of freedom. I mean, Trudeau has been recklessly dishonest using vaccine mandates as a weapon to get votes. Blacklock's reporter, which um, reveals... You know, while Trudeau was fear-mongering for votes during the election, when he was threatening to fire unvaccinated public servants, the Treasury Board had data showing that 98% of the public service was fully vaccinated. So yeah, Trudeau manufactured the outrage, and he should be called upon it, and yet he never is. And the reality is, O'Toole can't, and won't win this fight politically because the public overwhelmingly wants vaccine mandates. And most people, not those who listen to talk radio, but most everyday people going about their business do not care to parse through the fine print of political processes. So here we are with O'Toole fighting for his political life, leaving this country pretty much without an official opposition to push back against a liberal minority that will once again be propped up by the spend-happy NDP. And Trudeau met with his caucus today for the first time in seven weeks. Seven weeks after the most important election of our life, he said. They've done literally nothing. He's done literally nothing other than vanity projects for months. And so there's so much for O'Toole and the Conservatives to go after be it rising energy costs, surging inflation, cost of living. I mean, Canadians need someone fighting for them, and sadly, it's not going to happen because for whatever reason, O'Toole would rather pick fights he can't win, which is going to suit Justin Trudeau just fine. Transitory to economists means sort of not permanent. Right. I, I think to a lot of people, transitory means it's going to be over quickly. And, and, you know, maybe, I don't know exactly what the right word is, but... It's probably something like, you know, transitory but not short-lived. Well, that's what I call a whole lot of suck-meat-blow. That is the voice of Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem, who over the weekend told CTV that inflation will be transitory but not short-lived, which, if you ask me, says 
inflation won't last forever, but it's going to be around a lot longer than he initially said. And it seems that the governor has had to change his position on this issue a few times, mainly because the major banks all said that, well, inflation was worse than we were being told and is here to stay. And up until now, Macklem has argued that this is short-lived, driven by things like supply chain issues and the pandemic. But here we are with supply chain issues nowhere near being fixed. We've got rising energy prices, food inflation going on, and the threat of interest rates going up. And the... Bank of Canada governor basically telling us, yeah, it's here, but it's not here. So is it here? Let's ask. Philip Cross, senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, also 36 years with Stats Canada, where he specialized in macroeconomics. Good to have you, Philip. Thanks for having me back, Alex. So what did the Bank of Governor uh, say? Did you understand that? Near as I can figure out, I think he's basically saying uh, the Bank of Canada misread inflation, but they never like to publicly say they've made a mistake. I mean, it undermines confidence in in, uh, in the institution. Um, I think clearly what he's saying is that it, you know inflation is more of a problem than they expected. That it's it's not just supply side disruptions. That there's some broader forces at work here. But at the end of the day, I I sort of come to the same point. And I think inflation is going to run hotter than they expected. Uh, this year and into next year, and it's it's into next year is the part they didn't expect. But I, I have no doubt at the end of the day, the Bank of Canada, they might be behind to the curve, but they'll catch up and they'll they'll wrestle inflation to the ground. They have no choice. I mean, they just cannot let things get out of hand the way they did in the 70s. Uh, the cost to the economy and, and to the Bank of Canada's independence would just be too great. So uh, I think eventually they, they will... Uh, bring it under control, and in that sense, it won't be permanent, but it's going to be more than just a few bad months of CPI numbers, too. So, you know, this is a bank of governor um, who has been kind of more wrong than he has been right in the last year, and some would suggest, and I've talked about it on the show, that he's more politicized than past Bank of Canada uh, governors have been. Would that be a fair statement? Oh, I don't think you can get more politicized than Mark Carney. I mean, I was at Statistics Canada when Mark Carney was at the Bank of Canada, and, you know, I knew what it meant to work in an organization that had to keep its independence. And this man did not keep his independence. He flirted with the Liberal leadership. I mean, imagine, the, the head of the Bank mm-hmm. of Canada has weekly meetings with the Department of, uh, with the Minister of Finance. How would you like to be Jim Flaherty having a weekly meeting with somebody who may be your opponent in the next election, for all you know. I mean, that mm-hmm. is compromising the independence. That is politicizing in the bank in a way that no other governor has. So uh, we survived Mark Carney. We've, we've survived worse than this. Uh, I, I think, the, you know, if you go back and you read the bank statements, the, the mistake that um, Macklin made last year was at the height of the pandemic, you can see in their, in their monetary policy reports, they clearly stated they, they thought that this was a shock to demand and that supply would fix itself very quickly, but they were worried about bringing demand back, and that's why they brought in all this stimulus. Well, here we are a year later, and clearly the problem is supply, not demand. Demand came rocketing back with all the stimulus we pumped into the system. The problem is supply didn't come back for a whole bunch of reasons, and that's creating the upward pressures on on inflation. So uh, the bank... uh, completely misread what the uh, the supply and demand dynamics were during the pandemic. I guess you can forgive them. 
how many pandemics have we seen in our lifetime? Um, but you know, uh, they they really have to uh, uh, recognize they made that mistake, and they have to start correcting for it. And so, I think at this point, Philip, then Canadians just want a bit of truth. They want to know what to expect, when to expect it, so that they can plan for that day. Um, you know, the talking point from all the politicians is that we're going to come roaring back. But that's just a load of baloney. We're not roaring back to anything. We have a flat GDP. Um, and then we've got all these issues, including energy, um, you know, cost issues and the inflation and interest rates that are you know, going to go up probably sooner than later. And Canadians are trying to figure out how to prepare for that. And so what are we looking at in your mind as to when we're going to see this kind of What's the worst case scenario when you, you have someone saying transitory but not permanent? Is he talking like 10 years of 5% interest rates or like what does it look like? Yeah, well, part of the problem is that shortages are very, are very difficult for my former colleagues at StackCan to measure. Shortages mm. create a higher cost to consumers. If you have to wait for things, if you have to substitute more expensive tires, because the cheap winter tires aren't in stock, that's a higher price to consumers. But the CPI doesn't catch that. So when Sister Canada says inflation's running at 4.4, it's undoubtedly running much higher than that. I, how much higher, I don't know, but certainly well over 5%. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, how long will it run? I, I don't think very long. I think the Bank of Canada began to, to tell people that you remember those interest rate heights we were talking about in the second half of 2022? Well, they're going to be earlier, and they're probably going to be bigger than, than what was expected. So I think we're going to have, uh, when they talked about transitory, transitory means two, three, maybe four months. I think we're likely looking at a couple of years now. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly, you know, 10 years, I don't think there's... Ten years, people at the Bank of Canada would start losing their jobs. The Bank of Canada would start losing their independence. Politicians would demand that they took control of monetary policy again. There's no way the Bank of Canada is going to let things get out of hand. I think they, the Bank of Canada basically said, we're going to let inflation rip in 2021, uh, just like the Federal Reserve Board said the same thing. But uh, as this carries over into 2022, I think then you'll see the banks start to take forceful action to uh, to start to bring this down. So I wouldn't expect inflation to run hot for more than uh, um, you know a couple of years. Right, and in the meantime, I mean, we still don't even have a sitting parliament. We've had. Uh you know, four months, five months since we've had any kind of real functional governing. And I think people uh, just generally want to see the politicians get back to work. But we have not had any signal from the Trudeau government um, of a plan to deal with this, how they're going. I mean, it was the cost of living was not even the issue that we were discussing during the election. So I don't get the sense and maybe you see it differently of any urgency, sense of urgency coming from the current government in charge. None whatsoever. As I say, the policymakers here in Ottawa just completely misread what was happening during the pandemic. They assumed that it was a demand problem. And economists are very good at short-term demand management. And they rushed into the pandemic with all this stimulus of fiscal policy, all these huge deficits, zero interest rates, and so on. You know, the Bank of Canada, I think, is beginning to real to say now, okay, it's not a demand problem, it's a supply problem. That requires completely different policies. 
But no, we haven't seen the federal government in its fiscal policies begin to acknowledge that at all. It really, you know, the the slower they are to acknowledge that and to change their policies, that just yeah. means that the higher interest rates are going to go because the Bank of Canada will be the only game in town that understands inflation is a problem. If they don't get help from anybody else, they're going to do it themselves. That's going to be painful for everyone, especially a government that's running sky-high deficits. Mm-hmm. But as I say, I have no doubt the Bank of Canada will take whatever action is needed. If they don't get help, they're just going to have to take stronger action. But that's that's up to the government to make that decision. They haven't shown any indication they're ready to even acknowledge that problem. I'm sure the Bank of Canada, in those weekly meetings with the Department of Finance, is explaining to them, this is becoming a problem. If you guys don't help us, we're going to fix this. But it's going to get fixed. Jeez. Wow. Well, when they hear about the NDP Liberal Coalition, I'm sure they'll... Uh maybe move that up. But nonetheless, we're in for some interesting times. Always appreciate your uh, clarity on this issue, Philip. So thank you very much for chatting with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alex. That is Philip Cross over at the uh, McDonald-Laurier Institute, but also with StatsCan for almost four decades uh, dealing with these kinds of issues. And it's true. Just just say something, even if it is just to give reassurance to people in this country that you're dealing with it, you know? All of our MPs that participate in the House will be vaccinated. I, I don't get into talking about the personal health situation of any member of Parliament, Senator, or any Canadian. What I've tried to do since the earliest days of this pandemic is to promote vaccines, to make sure we answer any questions that people have about them, and not politicize the taking or having questions answered about vaccines. I will continue to take that same approach. That is a Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, and uh, sorry to report, but the issue of vaccines is political. And it's uh, further fueled by Aaron O'Toole's inability to take a tough uh, and very straightforward stand on the issue that lost him the election. And now, post-election, his leadership is being questioned thanks to a group of rogue MPs who've now started their own mini-party within the Conservative Party. And they say they're there to fight for the unvaccinated, and while... You know, it's not being done in their minds to undermine O'Toole. It is exactly what is being seen. And I guess he's going to let them because when he was asked, are you going to kick them out or what are you going to do with them? He would not commit to any kind of answer. And in no way does this serve, I think, Canadians well right now. We need a strong opposition. But right now, all Mr. O'Toole is doing is helping Justin Trudeau get cover from all his many, many failures. Jenny Byrne is now with Jenny Byrne and Associates, but once upon a time she was Chief of Staff to one Stephen Harper. Good to have you. Do we have Jenny? Hi. Oh, there you are. All right. (laughs) I got you now. Sorry about that. So, you know, in your days working, um, you know, for Stephen Harper, from the outside looking in, what would... uh, how would you view what's going on with uh, Aaron O'Toole right now under his leadership? Well, I think what we're seeing now is, I know I saw that, listened to the clip that you played in terms of uh, the cost that is uh, uh, that is standing up for the unvaccinated, but I think what we're seeing is a leadership vacuum within the Conservative Party of Canada. And I think that's what happened. So when there was a vacuum and a leader and his team are not communicating with MPs and they're not, more importantly, communicating with uh, Canadians, they're not communicating with the constituents for these MPs. You are going to then have uh, factions develop uh, within caucus 
because they're, they're, they, they don't know what else really to, uh, they don't know really what else to do. And so I think it is less about uh, the vaccine mandate within the House of Commons than it is about Aaron's actual leadership and how silent he has been on major, major issues uh, since the election, which is well over a month and a half ago. Right. And recently, uh, Brian Mulroney um, took a hard stand saying, well, you just kick these people out, which back in his day may have been easier to do. There wasn't the 24-7 news cycle. It wasn't, you know, social media and all the rest of it. Uh, but certainly your leader uh, and your boss, Stephen Harper, was able to do what no other conservative leader uh, has been able to do s- since he left. And that is um, have a very controlled and disciplined uh, caucus. And he was able to manage those, uh, you know, with differing views on the social conservative side while bringing in people, um, you know, center right and, and from the right. Uh, what did he do? Uh, why was he able to do it? And Andrew Scheer hasn't been able to do it, nor has Aaron O'Toole. Well, Stephen Harper understood the conservative coalition and he respects all. He respects all aspects of that coalition, as you said, from the social conservatives to the democratic reformers uh, to the fiscal conservatives. Uh, conservatives had a home and he respected caucus and in turn caucus respected him. He never went out and made uh, promises uh, based on electoral reasons uh, ever. Of course, he campaigned on issues, but it wasn't for the sake of, of getting elected as Aaron did uh, in the leadership race. And I think that a lot of people uh, don't realize just how important caucus was uh, to the Harper administration. As someone that worked for him, I know um, on our Wednesday morning caucus meetings, he missed two in the entire time he was leader of the the Conservative Party. So he showed the respect to caucus, and in in turn, they showed the respect back to him. And so where do you see this going? Because Marilyn Gladue's taken a position. She's got her own interests. She wanted to be the leader. She's not, but she was, um, if I'm correct, a health uh, critic. I mean, she's going out there on shows. She's talking about, you know, uh, polio being more dangerous than COVID. She's putting out stuff that, that really she shouldn't. But worse is that she has, uh, you know, by appearances anyway, at the very least, undermined the leadership of Aaron O'Toole. And so you can't have this mini caucus within caucuses is just not a function. You can't have it because these divisions will just get more ingrained. Where do you see this going? Well, I guess we'll see where it goes. I don't think she was the last uh, health critic, though. I think that was Michelle Rumpel. She might have been at one point before but her. I don't. Think yeah, I think she was at one point, yeah. not, not before Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. So I so I so I, I think that Michelle was the uh, was the critic uh, the last time. I guess we'll see what happens in terms of uh, next steps. As I said. Uh, it is a much different time. And so the difference also that Aaron has, uh, not just from Brian Mulroney's time, but from Stephen Harper's time, is the caucus has adopted the Reform Act. So he cannot kick caucus members out, even if he wanted to. It's not up to the leader. It's up to caucus. And so the mechanism uh, that other leaders have had, uh, Aaron doesn't have, because, of course, uh, the, the caucus has support this. This is Mike Chong's bill. Mike Chong is one of Aaron's biggest uh-huh. Uh, supporters within uh, within caucus. We saw the Liberals had their first caucus meeting from the election uh, earlier today, and they voted against uh, adopting the Reform Act. And so that has taken uh, logistical power away from the leader to be able to actually enforce any form of uh, discipline on his caucus. Yeah, and and the problem, and there are many, 
um, you know, and I pointed this in, in my introduction to you, is that we need an opposition right now. Um, we've got a, a liberal minority that's going to once again be propped up by the NDP. They're already talking coalition or whatever it is that they'll do. They'll do the same thing they did last time. We have some really serious issues with inflation, uh, costs of food going up, cost of living, uh, driving people um, you know, uh, into real concern and worry, inflation, all these costs of living things and energy crisis. Um, and we don't have a functional opposition because they are just too much of a distraction to themselves. Agreed. There has been over the last, Alex, the last three and a half weeks, every day there has been another grim reminder of where the Canadian economy is going. From what you said in terms of uh, inflation, we're, we're hitting even the Bank of Canada, who was telling everyone not to worry up until August of this yeah. year that inflation was never going to happen. They're admitting now it's going to go up to a minimum of 5%, which I think is probably a very low estimate um, that, that they have. And they really have no idea on how long it's going to last. We also see a government that, that's out the, the COP, the, the big conference uh, where you the, the where you had a bunch of people go and spend a lot of money to get together uh, and talk about a one hundred trillion dollar fund to transition into green energy, which by the way is more money than what the entire world has right now. So it's 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 a very lofty goal. But at the end of the day, how it affects Canada is ten percent of our GDP is based in oil and gas. Twenty five to thirty percent of our exports are uh, oil and gas, and so. It, is, it could take a giant hit to the Canadian economy. And other than a few conservatives out there talking, this is not something that Aaron O'Toole has been talking about at all. He had a press conference today on the so-called coalition, mm -hmm. as you said, between the NDP and the Liberals. There's never going to be a formal coalition. The Liberals don't need it. If the NDP want to prop them up, uh, they're going to prop them up anyway. So, so all it did was, because it wasn't newsy, he went out, and that's why he ended up talking about a vaccine mandate. Even though this is a liberal government, Alex, with their vaccine mandate, the exemptions in terms of the public service are vast, including most front-facing uh, staffers. So if you're an auditor with Revenue Canada, if you, are, if you work at a Veterans Vets Canada office uh, and you're interfacing with the public, you actually are exempt uh, from having to have your vaccination. Mm. So there's a lot of hypocrisy there, and I don't see Aaron uh, uh, jumping on it like he should. Yeah, no, you know, he may have a principled stand on, on these issues or loss of freedoms or any of that. The bottom line is, though, he's not winning the fight with the way and the tactics he's using. And so um, what would Harper do? How would, how would a Harper, Stephen Harper, uh, solve this issue? Well, I don't think Harper would have had, ever ended up in the position that he's, he's in now. <laughs> but I think that, um, I think that, uh, I think that Aaron, uh, uh, I think that the time for fixing this is almost over. We're, we're two months away from, uh, we're two months from an election. Um, Aaron hasn't even announced his shadow cabinet yet, even though it's, it's been two weeks tomorrow since uh, the Liberals announced, uh, since Trudeau announced his cabinet. And it just seems to be a spiraling out of control. I don't see anything uh, that Aaron or his people are doing uh, that signifies that they have the fight or they know what the fight is internally with with caucus. And so I guess we're going to see, we've, we'll, we'll, we will see what's today. We're, we're two and a half weeks away from uh, the House sitting uh, and from MPs uh, taking their seats in the House of Commons. So I think that's going to be probably the next test of his leadership. When you try to please everyone, you end up failing everyone. Exactly. Uh, Jenny, very much appreciate your perspective and uh, thank you very much. We'll try it again. Thanks so much. Bye. That is uh, Jenny Byrne, former chief of staff to one Stephen Harper. And uh, no, sadly, I don't think he's coming back. But if he were back, he would never have gotten himself in this situation. 
question is, why did the Toronto police go to a Port Dover home that belonged to a world-renowned known gunsmith? who was then shot and killed. Uh, this is a case we don't have a lot of details about because, of course, the SIU has been brought in and the key case sealed up. But when I saw this headline, it certainly raised a few questions for me. Um, Roger Katanko is his name, and he's known in the firearm community as the best gunsmith in this country, whether it's repairing guns, rebuilding, uh, modifying guns, or even teaching people how to use them. I mean, he even worked in, uh, with Norfolk's police officers. So why then did Toronto police execute a firearm search warrant to go to his home and then why was this gunsmith shot four times one time in the neck three times in the chest Dan Nagy is a longtime friend and mentee of Robert uh, Roger Kentanko he's the owner of Eli's Guns and Archery he joins us now good to have you hi Alex thanks good to be here I'm sorry for your loss um this seems to have hit the um firearm community uh, quite quite hard. I mean, this is a man who ran a custom gunsmithing business uh, out of his home. He had a workshop. He actually had a customer, uh, according to witnesses, uh, when police arrived at his door. So this is someone that the police would know about because he'd have been registered with them, correct? Yeah, like he, he's a licensed business, so the Chief Firearms Office of Ontario um, is the ones who issue our business licenses, and they list the criteria in which uh, um, the business is allowed to operate under. Mm-hmm. How so has this... They, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, was going to say, go, so they, they, would, they would know everything, everything that's in his shop or his building, which was separate from his residence, by the way. Uh, it's a building that's um, away from his residence by, I don't know what it would be, probably 20, you know, 15, 20 yards, something like that. So like they they know every single thing that's in there and the, the records that we have to keep and such is just phenomenal. So there's um it, it's it's really mind boggling that somehow the chief firearms office wasn't involved in this. And you knew him quite well. I mean, you considered yourselves uh, friends. Um y- you were trained by him. Um you know, you, you kind of looked at him as a mentor. And so how has his um, sudden death, uh, we'll call it that for now, um, rippled through that community? Uh, it's It's been, uh, I, I don't even know what, what words you can actually use to describe it. There isn't, there isn't anybody in the community that's just, uh, we're, we're just so confused how somebody who's, you know, um, so gentle, um, he was a friend to everybody in the community, including our, our local detachment he's done work for them um this is the part we don't understand is why why our local detachment wasn't involved um none of this would have happened uh, in my mind if uh if our local detachment had known about it because they would have just said well we'll call him in and we'll talk to him while you guys execute your warrant right and I, I can't tell anybody why the Toronto police would end up at a Port Dover address because, of course, once the SIU takes over a case, um, it's a bit of a shield for the police um, to, you know, work out the investigation. Meanwhile, certainly if this man had a reputation in the community as being irresponsible or reckless, I mean, that would have gotten out pretty quickly. Oh, sure. But he was. He was just so... That, that's, it's, it's kind of... I'm curious that you used the word shield 
And, and I've got to agree with you 100%. It's like, you know, the, the SIU, to me, you know, for my opinion, for what it's worth, it, it, it's kind of like when the military investigates the military of wrongdoing. You've got the SIU, which my understanding is they're generally retired constables and inspectors, police force, um, doing the investigation. Yeah, it's um, it's not the best system in my mind because there's not enough um, independence and it can take a long, long time before we hear any information or results that come out of the investigation. And so for his family, for his friends in the community, you're left um, in a world of darkness. And certainly uh, I know he was married. Um, I don't know if he had family, but certainly this is going to have a huge impact on them. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. He had, uh, you know, his mother, his brother, his wife. um who had met uh, several occasions. Roger had met in China, and um, he had <laughs> he'd worked a long time hard uh, with immigration uh, in order to get his wife to come over here, and he finally did. You know, after a couple of years worth of, of work, and she, you know, um, she worked very hard learning English on her own, and and helped uh, you know with the business, like keeping books and and such, and. You know, here's you know, here's a couple that finally get their, you know, they finally get their lives on the road that they want, and you know, in a blink of an eye, it's taken away from them. And I know that guns, you know, are are a contentious issue. It's a very divisive issue. Um, you know, those in the gun community in this country get a lot of uh, hard time, um, kind of lumped in with the gang shootings that we uh, hear, but they are they are not to be. Um, compared, I mean, the, the, those in our firearm community are very, very responsible. Um, and so I, I know that this will hit uh, hard, but I mean, did you know or had the community, had there ever been problems before with the police coming out? Had there ever been cause for them to uh, visit um, with Mr. Contanko at all? No, no, of course not. In 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 our community, our, our detachment here, the Ontario Provincial Police, they they treat everybody as if we're all part of a community, and maybe that's the difference between the the rural areas and and the urban areas. Um, you know, when when you say gun owners, um, you'd be surprised how many customers even I have from Toronto, and you know those uh, I've mentioned before that inanimate objects never hurt anybody. It's always somebody behind it. And, you know, I've often said that, you know, the people that live in the the large cities in this country, they need to be told the truth, like educated on the truth of uh, of what firearm owners are like, not by what certain politicians like to like the, the paint picture they like to paint. And, you know, by saying that it was, you know, if if somebody's got um doesn't agree with people owning guns, and I think they should ask their doctor if they're a firearms owner, and if they are, they should probably tell the doctor that they won't be seeing them anymore because they don't want to be a hypocrite. And the same thing with your dentist, your accountant, and everybody else. You know, we're we're people that are vetted 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's the person yeah. without a firearms license that you need to be worried about. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, and um, I'll certainly keep my eye on this story because I don't think it's a story being tell, uh, told in uh, complete form, and certainly we uh, can't tell it with facts and all. But nonetheless, um, I will hopefully uh, be able to talk with you again, Dan. I'm sorry for your loss. Okay, well, it's, uh, 
there's a, a lot of family that's that's suffering there that um you know they're suffering a lot more than I am let's put it that way and and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to to um try to help with uh mm-hmm. you know kind of clearing things up between the rural and urban centers and letting everybody know you know we're on the same team so the politicians have to start doing something you know against the gangs like the big cities do not have a gun problem they have gang problems and if your gang yeah, problem goes away it. so does your so-called gun problem yeah a discussion we'll have for another day but dan i'll follow up with you and uh, i appreciate your time okay well thank you very much for the opportunity Thank you. That is Dan Nagy. And we will stay on that headline because there's more to that story that has yet to be heard. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday live starting at 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.